Welcome to The Tech Entrepreneur, a podcast for business entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors who want to do more with technology, accelerate their business, and avoid the pitfalls of software development. Okay, welcome to The Tech Entrepreneur podcast. My name is Phil Telfer. I'm the CTO of Clear Sky Logic, and today our guest is Rachel Murphy, who's the Chief Executive at Difference. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Uh, brilliant. Thanks, Phil. Delighted to be here. Great stuff. Um, we had a good chat a little while ago about some of the things you're doing. Um, what do you think you'd give us a kind of brief outline of um, the work you've been doing at Different and sort of what led you to that? Just give us a bit yeah. of background. Of course, absolutely. So I'll start with the uh, I'll start with the background. I I spent 22 years as an interim manager um, working in lots of different uh, public, private, and consultancy. Uh, and I, I had a couple of years um, working for the health regulator, uh, Nursing Midwifery Council, and then a couple of years I led the patient transformation, uh, patient facing transformation for the NHS. And at the end of that, I was um, really keen to build out the company that I had tried to find when I'd been working in healthcare. I know that sounds quite grand, uh, but that was the motivation really for, for building different. Uh, so almost four years to the day, I, uh, I, I built out uh, the concept of different, uh, built the organisation, uh, and then latterly, 12 months ago, uh, sold the business. So as, a, as an organisation, different, uh, we design, uh, deliver, uh, and often run services for government and healthcare. Yeah, well, that's, I love that. So, um, that approach of yeah, you try to find a company like different, and then you thought, well, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist quite as I like it. So let's just go and create it. You know, you, so you knew what it was like to be the person who needed that. Yeah, I knew what it was like to be the person that needed it, and I think if I'm totally honest, I I also had never settled anywhere. So, you know, 22 years of interim work, and I've probably done 18 months, two years anywhere, uh, and, and to, have, to have managed four years in one place is, a, you know, is, is no mean feat for me. Uh, so uh, so, so that, was, uh, that was the motivation. I wanted to build a business where you could truly bring all of yourself to work. Yeah, I love that concept that you have around the delivery of, of value as well. So, so often in technology, people focus on the technology rather than on the, the benefits it brings to business uh, and, in, and in difference case I guess you know to, to, um, to people and, and government can you tell us a bit more about you know how you sort of focus on actually delivering value rather than just delivering software yeah absolutely so uh, right from the outset uh, we've been an outcome based organization probably way before it was trendy to be. That's how I manage staff and how we, we built the business uh, right from the outset. And I, I think the, the, the values of the organisation uh, therefore are carried forward in that way, if that makes sense. Um, and for, for me, it, it was never and will never be about just shipping some code. We really want to understand what the business problem is and we want to work back from that and make sure that we're delivering to, uh, to, to that business challenge and therefore delivering an outcome. So you had a, a reputation for delivery in, in previous roles. Um, it must have helped 
surely to um, to kind of kickstart the, the big growth that you'd had at different, um, you know, maybe bringing on certain clients or bringing on people you'd worked with in the past and that, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right, Phil. I, I, had, a, I had a big reputation, actually, uh, not just the delivery side. So I'm, I'm quite a large personality. And so that would have also, that would have been a positive and a negative. And, and I really needed to learn, you know, to self-regulate. Uh, a little when I first came into uh, came into different as well, but uh, my track record around delivery uh, was very much what we traded on for the first kind of eighteen months uh, in way of relationships, network, but but also the, the the understanding really in the marketplace around actually getting stuff done. So yeah, my personal brand, personal reputation was was delivery. Mm. That's it's really good to trade on that, isn't it? I think. You said in the past that you were you're not great with authority. Um, <laughs> do you think that's a help or a hindrance or a bit of both? It's such a great question. I've spent a lot of time this week uh, working actually in a in a, a in a strange way almost. So I've been supporting one of our clients uh, running a leadership program for w- women in their organisation, and it's all about personal development. So um, I, I've spoken about this at length in the last 48 hours, but, but I'm, I'm not great with authority. Uh, I never have been. Uh, and I think that probably is born out of having quite strict parents and uh, a desire not to have to deal with that probably right, right from the outset. Uh, so um, I, I guess my career mirrors that not great with authority to a certain extent because I like to go in, I like to have the top cover and I like to get the job done. But when it becomes political, I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'm all about the people and I'm all about the delivery. So that's the bit that I really struggle with. And um, I, I probably always have done. Uh, so I guess uh, that probably makes me quite tricky to manage. Um, and uh, that's, you know, that's something that, you know, whilst I, I work on that, I also don't want to change that, if I'm honest, Phil, because uh, I think it makes me very good at what I do in other ways. Yeah, I I can understand that. I think, is it not that, you know, being describing yourself as being not great with authority, doesn't that really mean that you just question the norms and question the rules, and that's a good thing? Yeah, I think it is, and I, I do think in a slightly different way. A couple of years ago, I was diagnosed ADHD, and, and that, uh, in a lot of ways, it wasn't a surprise because um, if you look back over uh, various shenanigans over the years, you would probably have tied those two things together. I, I just don't think ADHD was kicking around in 78 when I was born. Uh, so, yes, I think it may, means I question a lot. But, but also, uh, respect is earned. Um, you know, it isn't given because of a job title. And, and that, I think, is probably a lot of where some of my challenges around authority come from. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that, actually. Around the, you know, I think that because you have a title, I think some people perhaps maybe a bit more of an old-fashioned view there is that, well, this is my title, you need to respect me and, and listen to what I'm saying. However... In our organisation, we always encourage people to question and to challenge and to bring them for their full selves and to bring their own point of view. And, and it's not just me saying, well, I may be the most experienced software developer in the company just through the number of years because I've, I've been around longer. Yeah. That doesn't mean to say that I know more about anything by any stretch. You know, we, we hire people who are 
you know, much better developers than I am, much more current. They they know um, they've got a different background, and that and those things are hugely valuable. You know, it's not all about having lots of little fills running around or saying yes sir, no sir, three bags full. That's the last thing I would want. You know. And I, I agree with that. I mean, it probably been my worst nightmare having a load of little Rachels running around. Um, and, and it's interesting you, you talk about, you know, not, not necessarily being the, you know, the best developer. I think the other thing that that environment allows for is, is diversity of thought, of opinion, but also background and experience. And, you know, the, the services that, that we're both building, if we haven't got a wide plethora of insights and views and opinions, then, you know, here's the news. We're not going to hit those user needs and not therefore going to be successful. Absolutely, yeah. There was a big change, I understand, when you um, joined Different in that the, the focus of the business was very different to what it is now. Can you talk a bit about how that pivot took place and what some of the challenges that, that you had? So when I, when I first joined uh, Different, it was a recruitment company. And... Um, I'm, I'm not knocking recruitment companies, but I'm, uh, I have no burning desire to run one. Uh, I, I didn't then and I, I still don't. Uh, the, the bit for me that I wanted to move to was a delivery organisation, so take re- responsibility for the outcome uh, and also take some of that risk on. And, and you know the reality of that means that you are moving from a 10% margin to a 30% margin. Uh, but it overnight was was fundamentally different. So uh, different was, um, you know, out and out kind of body shopping resources in across public and private sector. And uh, we made the move uh, towards the public sector from a user centered perspective. Uh, and that was that was fundamentally different. But also fundamentally different for me. I'd come out of the NHS with a 300 million pound budget and I landed in a 2.3 million pound turnover company so um you know it was a it was a real um it was a real culture shock i think uh, probably on both sides yeah i think that you said also that there was a, a real fear within the team about losing the culture that you had built up when the the business was actually sold recently can you tell us a bit about how you built that culture up and and how you hope that's going to you know, maintain. Um, of course, absolutely. So we've spent a lot of time and effort in the last four years building out uh, an organisation that prides itself on being very diverse. Uh, and, um, you know, we have a really strong reputation around delivery uh, and, and they're kind of key key components for us. And, and when I went through the process of, of selling uh, different uh, we had three different companies that were interested in buying, and and the you know the most important point for me was around making sure that the core values were were aligned, and um and and that you know there was a similar style and approach in way of of how uh, how the buying organisation uh, kind of executed from a work perspective. So that's absolutely still part and parcel of um, of the work that we're we're doing with Panoply. Um, and you know, Panoply have been heavily acquisitive over the last uh, the last couple of years, and lots of the businesses in the group are very similar to different in way of culture and in way of having user centred design sit at the heart. How do you go about creating a culture that's actually genuine? Because there's a lot of a lot of talk around, especially larger or companies as they grow larger, find it harder to hold on to what culture they may have had when they were smaller and 
where people knew each other and there was you know maybe a high degree of trust and accountability with a growing company it's easy to kind of think of a few words that stick on the wall and how do you go about living and breathing culture in a, in a growing company like different I think that's I think that's a great question I think that there is a real need for role models within the organization I think authenticity is absolutely key to to that I, I think you know there's ways of embedding values into the organization uh, from a personal development perspective so you know if you measure people not just on the work that they do but how they do that work um, and, and make sure that those positive and negative indicators are aligned to your values that's a great way of that feedback loop really uh, around that activity but you know it's a big job that is and as companies get larger that requires more and more effort yeah i mean how do you deal with situations where the, where the culture isn't being um, isn't being lived and breathed by people who are perhaps you know senior in, in the organization or you know mid-level managers or role models to some extent it's quite difficult to to turn that around and into something which is positive do you think I think it's definitely difficult but I, I think some of that goes back to good old-fashioned management and uh, you know an expectation that you are actually managing the people that you're responsible for uh, and challenging some of that and to your point you know building an organization where people challenge that doesn't always need to be the line manager but if people see things that aren't in line with the culture and the values you know they do need to be uh, they need to be called out and, and this, I think, is probably one of the, you know, the key challenges of, of businesses like ours. The, the other side of this that I've seen, certainly in my time at Different, is where we have uh, members of our team who are working so closely with one of our clients that, you know, they start to adopt more of their culture. And, you know, there's phrases like they've gone a bit native. Uh, and, and that as well is, is another challenge that, you know, we've, we've absolutely had to deal with in the last four years. That, that's a, a key bit where I think communication, feedback, open and honest uh, dialogue is, is absolutely key. But also we've had a couple of members of staff in the last four years, certainly with one of our clients, where, you know, they wanted to work for that client, not for us. And, you know, contractually, of course, that probably wasn't really uh, feasible. But we absolutely, you know, absolutely signed that off and said, go, go do. I won't stand in anybody's way with what they, you know, what they personally want to do. Uh, and I think that probably um, highlights in a different way, you know, values of, of the organisation. You said um, previously that you described some of the team or the company as a dysfunctional family. Is that uh, we yeah, we often we it? often describe it as a dysfunctional <laughs> family? Actually, certainly. I would say in the earlier years, but we, you know, we have very tight relationships across the team at different. Uh, I think people probably know more about each other than they would do in a normal working environment. And, you know, I like that side of it. I, I really do like that side of it. Uh, but there's pros and cons with that because then you are pulled into stuff that isn't always work related. Uh, but I, I think it builds out, a, you know, a kind of deep, trust, respect, and, and relationship. Yeah. You talked a bit about um, the, the pros and cons of, relative pros and cons of, of remote working. Um, how has COVID affected 
your team and the dynamics within it over the last say, 18 months? I think that's a that's been a real roller coaster. So um, if we go back 18 months, we went fully remote four weeks before the national lockdown, the first one. And we did that because we work in healthcare, we could see the writing on the wall, and we knew that that was the right direction of travel. Um, and I think at the outset, you know, if we go back to last summer, the weather was fabulous. So that may well have played a part in people being a bit more relaxed, being at home for a few months. I know it did for me personally. And, and I, I'm, you know, I'm naturally much more of an extrovert. So for me, being at home on my own is not my ideal setup. But as a business, we've gone through people enjoying working fully remote. We've then had people who are desperate to be back in the workplace. Um, we're in a period at the minute where we're starting to get people back in uh, for workshops and for you know get-togethers, for socialising, for idea generation, for innovation. And some people want to do that and some people don't. And we're not forcing the issue. So what we're, we're given is the opportunity to do the in-person or do it remotely. And I think like many businesses... Uh, it's very easy to run fully remote or fully all in one place. The tricky bit is that hybrid with some remote because we all struggled with that before COVID. Uh, and I think that's the, the, the challenge that we're going to need to address in the coming months is how do we make it? You know, if you're running an event, for example, how do you truly make that as powerful an experience from home as it would be in person? Uh, and some of those bits are, are challenges we're going to need to work through. But, you know, we're being sensible. If we're physically getting together, people are asked to undertake a lateral flow test that morning. Yeah, we're, we're, we're just trying to create space, physical space, if we are together. It's difficult because I don't know whether it's just a different team, but we're all quite... Um, uh, physical with each other as well so when we first saw each other everyone's wanting to hug and you know I found myself at the forefront of that and I also found myself thinking Christ I hope I don't get Covid uh, so it's a real catch-22. Yeah I remember when our team was was small in the early days and I'd come into the office uh, in the morning or leave in the in the afternoon and I'd sort of shake hands with everybody and say I'll see you later see you tomorrow or whatever or, or good morning I thought I wonder what will make me stop doing this. I mean, I wonder how big we'll have to get before I stop shaking everyone's hand. And it actually wasn't the size we came, became, it was more, you know, it was COVID and the fact that now we just sort of do air handshakes or, you know, fist bumps or whatever else. And the kind of, yeah. the new norm of greeting is, uh, is not quite what it was. It's funny because I was pitching a new client uh, earlier this week and when we went in, instinctively, I went for the handshake and she sort of fist bumped. Uh, and uh, that that's just going to take a little bit of time. Yeah, absolutely. I think those struggles are the things that everybody's feeling right now, this sort of balance between home working and you know, coming into the office. I don't think there's, a, there's no easy answer for it. Some people are more comfortable than others. There are people at the opposite ends of, of spectrums with some, some people with fairly extreme views about it. It's difficult to please everybody for sure. It, it is. And, you know, I, from a personal standpoint, I'm having a, a housewarming party this weekend and three mates have got COVID this week who are due to be at the party. So it's things like that that bring it back home again. And working in healthcare, you know, my views are slightly skewed, if I'm honest, around uh, around COVID because you just hear too much about it. Talking of COVID, so you uh, were, I believe, responsible for, for developing the, 
the home testing and, and volunteering out for, for COVID-19. So the, um, yeah, the team absolutely were. Um, we, we had a phone call late one Sunday night, and by late I mean nine o'clock, which wouldn't have been late in my 20s and 30s, but uh, is, is in my 40s. So I had a, a phone call and we were asked to mobilise a couple of teams within 24 hours. Uh, and that was very early into the uh, into the first lockdown, and um, the the team then built out a number of services. But the home testing for COVID nineteen, volunteering was another, and then we also helped with uh, staffing up the one 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 service with uh, retired doctors um, and dentists to to help that overflow with the you know the sheer number of of of, of call volumes. But the COVID-19 home testing service was something we, uh, we built out in, in eight days and, and put live nationally, which, which was an incredible feat, you know, with partners that we'd never worked with before, with Deloitte, with Amazon, into various parts of the NHS, BSA, XD. Uh, and uh, it was incredible uh, because everybody pulled together. Everybody went way over and above and you know badges were truly left at the door and you know i know in our industry we often use that phrase but the reality is there's always a bit of you know posturing and uh positioning and and there was none of that people mm. were nose to the grindstone that's, that's some turnaround um so as an mvp good to get it out into production into eight days is, is quite something Do, has there been you know many iterations beyond that that have been a slightly more relaxed or has it always been as intense no no no, no. absolutely more more relaxed um so you know we had a gds assessment a 15 minute verbal assessment and and you know for, for people that work in the government sector um you know you, you normally plan for those for weeks let alone doing the work for the service build so it's been iterated i mean we we, we built and ran it for probably uh maybe four or five months and, and we handed that over to a different supplier well you know well, well over 12 months ago but um the uh yeah the, the the team the team that did the original build uh two or three of that team are, are still still with different and and often credit it as their most stressful uh 40 working days in their career personally i found it very exciting but I wasn't the one coding. I think those things are uh, obviously difficult at the time, but they're things you look back on with, with a lot of pride. You know, if you work really hard to deliver something, I mean, I know in my experience, you look back at some of those, you know, big go lines where you've built up to those for, you know, perhaps months or even years in some cases. You know, a lot of work that really comes to like, the crunch point and maybe late nights and a few you know, scary moments, but you get something over the line and, and yeah, it's a, it's a great feeling when you've actually implemented something which is, you know, just delivers real value. I think the, the other bit there was um, if you work in healthcare and you're in a pandemic, you know, you could argue it's, it's the probably the single most exciting time and your chance really to, you know, to leverage your skills and to add some serious value. To, to Boris's credit, he actually wrote a letter out to the team um, and, and thanked them individually for the work that they'd done on that, which, you know, is something that will, you know, probably never happen again to people working in, well, let's hope it doesn't with a pandemic. But, you know, it's a one-off, isn't it? It's not, yeah. uh, it's not a usual day at the office. You get that framed. Stick it on the wall. Oh, I didn't get one, unfortunately. I mean, I, I'm disappointed. <laughs> I'll have to doctor somebody else's, but... Uh, the, uh, the team absolutely did and uh, were, you know, blown away with it. Fantastic. 
So if you were starting again at different, are there any particular changes that you would make to the approach that you had? Anything that you've learned which you think, well, that's definitely something I would improve upon? Oh, that's a brilliant question. Uh, so much is the answer, Phil. So much. Um, I, I hadn't built a business before. And uh, I think the speed at which we went after things was probably uh, quite ambitious. Um, and it's very easy if you are the individual operating at that pace. But when you're bringing a company along, that's, um, that's definitely uh, quite a tall order. I think understanding um, and honing in on certain services that we take to market rather than spread betting and going wide, which we did at the outset. I also think, you know, things that I learned as we went through due diligence around how I'd been running the company, and I've blogged about this before, but, you know, I understood my business in a, a way that I'd never understood it when I went through due diligence for the sale because you look at the numbers in a different way uh, and, you know, you understand that business in a fundamentally different way. So I think some of the, the operating models and the tools, definitely. Uh, but what would never change is the people first, you know, the values, the integrity, the desire to make a difference and, and being authentic. They, they are all component parts that, no, they, they absolutely wouldn't change. Fantastic. It sounds like you're uh, in a great position to do something, do something uh, even more exciting in the future, do you have any particular plans from this point onwards? I think at the minute we're a year into the uh, we're a year into the buy um, of different from Panoply, um, and um, that you know the, there's an awful lot of work uh, in way of how we operate with the other uh, companies across Panoply, uh, and how we can really leverage the opportunity across the group. Uh, so I think it's probably. Um, you know, bigger and better. That's the uh, that's the opportunity at the minute. Well, I'll look forward to uh, to seeing what happens next. Just wanted to say thank you very much for your time, Rachel. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been some really good insights in there. Uh, thank you very much, uh, and all the best for the future. Brilliant. Thanks, Phil. Much appreciated. You've been listening to the Tech Entrepreneur, brought to you by ClearSky, the digital transformation agency for scale-ups and established business who believe you don't need to be held back by technology. Whether you need software to help your customers self-serve, a mobile app to manage customer engagement, or automation to make sure your staff are spending time on what matters most, ClearSky provides dedicated software development teams in the UK ready to take on your next project. Find out more at clearskylogic.com.